Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. Great coaches have always understood this about how powerful the mind is and how you have to leverage it. You can visualize an outcome that you want and your nervous system gets adjusted to it. So when you're there in the moment, there's a sense of certainty about it as well. Welcome to the Mark Divine Show. This is Mark Divine, your host. Super stoked to have you here. In the show, I discover, I dive in, I go deep, and I discuss just what makes the world's most interesting, inspirational, and compassionate, resilient leaders so courageous and why they do such great things in the world. We talk in depth to people from all walks of life martial arts grandmasters, meditation monks, CEOs, military leaders, stoic philosophers, proud survivors, and peak performance experts like today. Every episode, we dig into our guests' life and experience and deliver actionable insights that you can use to follow, lead, and live a life filled with compassion and courage. Today, we're going to be talking about the role of confidence in performance. You may have the ability to perform well, and you may have trained hard, but if you don't believe in yourself and your ability, then your performance ultimately will falter. Dr. Nate Zinser is a sports psychology expert, director of performance psychology at West Point. Uh, his research has been published in the Journal of Sports and Exercise Psychology, the Canadian Journal of Psychology, and he's in a, a widely used textbook, Applied Sports Psychology, Personal Growth to Peak Performance. Dr. Zinsler's also mentored two-time Super Bowl MVP Eli Manning, the New York Giants, and Philadelphia Flyers for 12 seasons. We worked with the Flyers a bit. He's a consultant for the FBI the Army's world-class athlete program, where they mentor Olympic medalists. He's mentored four, U.S. Army's recruiting command, the marksmanship unit, and even the fire department of New York. He's a true human performance expert. He's got a new book out that we're going to be discussing called The Confident Mind, Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance. Super stoked to have you here, Dr. Nate Zinsler. Appreciate your time. Who you uh, super stoked and psyched to be with you, Mark. I really appreciate this opportunity. I have spoken with a few Navy SEALs in my time, and it's always a real pleasure and a privilege to have this opportunity with you. Yeah, no, the privilege is mine. Yeah, thanks for being at West Point. How long have you been there? I started here in July of 1992, and I've never looked back. Holy schmoly. Yeah. That's a long career. That's a, that's a lot of graduating classes. That's a lot of graduating classes, no doubt. I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes there. Wow. Well, I want to talk about training Army folks as well as elite athletes because I know it's very different. But first, let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, where did you grow up? What were some of the formative experiences that got you interested in what you do and led you to West Point? Sure thing. I'm a refugee from the state of New Jersey. And um, <laughs> I attended, starting in the sixth grade, a small private boys school. And something that I noticed pretty much from the very first day I arrived were all the signs and posters around the school attracting people to the next upcoming game of the soccer team. Mm -hmm. And the soccer team was good. And the next year I saw it again and the team was good. And the next year and the next year. And it seemed like there was this considerable belief and expectation that the soccer team would be a powerhouse year after year. Mm -hmm. And indeed it was. Interestingly enough, the soccer team 
was the only team at the school that was a powerhouse year after year after year. And even more interestingly enough, you could take half that soccer team, put them on the basketball court, or put them on the lacrosse field or baseball field. And, you know, again, Mark, this is back in the days when guys played two or three sports, um, right. you know, before modern specialization. But even when you take these guys who are, are really excellent soccer players, put them in another context, you know, they're only just sort of so-so. Right. And it struck me as interesting, curious, somewhat odd that this particular soccer program was so darn good year after year after year, whereas none of the other teams at the school seemed to have that. You know, I didn't understand what was going on for a while, but I learned and I you know, had the experience of being around an institution that had formed a really constructive, self-fulfilling prophecy right. about itself. Right. You know, this program fed on its own mystique. The whole school bought into it and the whole state bought into it. The coach of that uh, soccer team, a fellow by the name of Miller Bellari, one of the greatest soccer coaches that ever lived, I never had the opportunity to play for him because I played football and other sports, but he had succeeded in convincing young kids, seventh grade maybe, that if you were diligent, stuck with the sport, maybe went to a camp in the summer, you had a really good chance of being a starter by the time you were in 11th or 12th grade. And so he always had a very deep bench and there was always this positive expectation, this self-fulfilling prophecy about success for that soccer team. And I remember vividly one day in the ninth grade, when I'm sitting at the lunch table and I'm telling some of my classmates, you know, we got a lot of talent on the wrestling team coming up. A lot of guys in our class. You know, I think once we get some seasoning, once we get some good quality competition under our belts, dang it, we're going to be good. And a fellow looked at me from across the table and said, Nate, shut up. You're never going to be any good. Huh. Guys at this school don't wrestle well. Quote, unquote. I'll never forget those words. He said, we're good in soccer. Sometimes we're good in tennis. Sometimes we're good in swimming. But we've never been good at wrestling and we never will be. Huh. Now, on the one hand, the guy was absolutely correct because at the time, the wrestling program was pretty much a doormat. Right. But I kept thinking, man, who gave him the crystal ball? Right. And it was just such a clear example of how people's ideas about themselves, individually and collectively, when we're talking about a team, right. those ideas have a really powerful effect on what actually happens. That's right. And I'm really proud to say that in my junior year at that high school, our wrestling team had the first winning season in a long, long, long time. Nice. We did it again my senior year. I won the independent school state championship, and the team hasn't been a doormat ever since. So that was a really early experience in me understanding you know, how powerful the mind and how powerful your sense of yourself really is. That's fascinating. I love that. And, and the fact that you were kind of self-aware of what was going on at that age, you know, to be able to reflect upon the power of that kind of collective story, both positive and negative, is really interesting. Right. So did that shape, that experience shape your decision to study psychology in college? Or? Very much so. That experience led me to think a lot about the whole psychology of human performance 
in the broadest possible context. I went to a small college in Western Massachusetts where I wrote a senior thesis on the psychology of performance, even before the term sports psychology had ever even been coined. Right. So, you know, all my experiences as a competitive wrestler, uh, as an alpinist, you know, climbing all over the North American continent, studying martial arts from the time I was 14 right up until today, all of those performance activities of mine have really been shaped by an interest and an exploration of exactly how your mentality how your collection of thoughts affects you physically mm-hmm. and influences how you perform. That's fascinating. We have interesting kind of overlaps, both. But you didn't actually get in the, did you have military experience? None whatsoever. I was hired for this job at West Point to be the sort of subject matter expert and source of continuity right. to a program that was started here in 1988 as a very small pilot just to support the Army football team. Oh, interesting. A visionary graduate, a bird colonel, combat veteran by the name of Louis Choga, C-S-O-K-A. I know Louis. Phenomenal guy. Yeah, he recently had some health issues, I know, so he's not able to continue his work, but um, he had a stroke recently. But yeah, Louis. Louis was the guy who who had this blinding flash of the obvious. He said, come on, we are preparing cadets for potentially the most stressful human activity possible, ground combat. Right. We ought to really look at the intangibles of what creates or enables success in that context. We're going to get them physically fit. We're going to get them the best equipment possible. We're going to teach them all about geography and and engineering. Maybe we ought to be teaching them a little bit about confidence, focus, composure under pressure. Can we actually come up with a curriculum that'll help our cadets understand those things? He came up with a skeletal program in 1988, began to pilot it. It flourished here at West Point. And late in 1991, he put out a search for a civilian subject matter expert with a lot of applied experience. Um, And I ended up with the job and I've been here ever since. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, Lewis was quite a pioneer. Speaking of pioneers, you know, you talk about sports psychology being kind of nascent in the late 70s, early 80s. But um, I had a swim coach at Colgate named Bob Benson who um, had me visualize my race with a stopwatch. Yeah. And so he was like putting himself out there. That was really early in the day before there was any real chatter about the power of practice visualization. I've told this story before. It had a profound effect on me. Like literally... I had to trust him because, as you know, it's really hard to do that, especially to swim an entire race in your head, you know, with your eyes closed. It took me months and months before I could actually concentrate deep enough to do that. But when I finally did, was able to do that, my time kind of settled in at at the same time every time I would do it, roughly, you know, within a few hundredths of a second. And it was always three seconds faster than I'd ever swum in my life. Mm. And the way the story goes, and I'll, I'll be really brief here, is that that was my sophomore year. And then junior fall, I did one of those overseas study groups. So I, I didn't swim that year. I was kind of off the team because I was overseas. And I came back in the spring and they were finishing up the season. And I ran into the coach and he's like, hey, Mark, you know, blah, blah, blah. How was your trip? You know, oh, by the way, we've got our championship race coming up next weekend. You want to get in the pool? And my head's going, nodding yes. And my mind is saying, I don't want to do that, of course. <laughs> But there I was standing on the block and I, I jumped in for the 200 meter breaststroke and, and I was like, oh my God, I felt like I'd swum this race before. And, 
And I got that time that I'd visualized uh, a full year before. That doesn't surprise me in the least. Right. Great coaches have always understood this. Whether they wrote books or conducted research on it, the great coaches have always known about how powerful the mind is and how you have to leverage it. I had a great experience very similar to that, mentoring the first cadet to run a sub-four-minute mile. No kidding. Yep. That fella, Dan Brown, who just retired as an 05, he coached in the Army's world-class athlete program for a while. He ran the 10,000 meters and the marathon in the 2004 Olympic Games. But in February of 1997, he became the first cadet to run a sub-four-minute mile. And he and I had worked together lots, lots prior to that. And he sat in one of our special ergonomically designed recliners. We would go to the field house in his imagination, you know, picturing in vivid detail some of his warm-ups, some of the you know, sights and sounds of that particular meet that was coming up in, in two days. This was on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. And we took a, a very detailed visualization right up to the starting line. We had a simulation of a starting gun go, oh, cool. hit the stopwatch, and he ran that sub-four-minute mile. He ran like 358-something in his imagination, hitting every split that he wanted to hit. Two days later, he runs about four or five, maybe four-tenths of a second slower but it was still the first four minute, sub four minute mile in academy history. And that record still stands today, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm grooming his successor to Are run you? a little faster. <laughs> but the, the idea of you can visualize an outcome that you want and your nervous system gets adjusted to it. Right. So when you're there in the moment, there's still a sense of excitement. Right. But there's a sense of certainty about it as well. Because it's happened before. That word I've used often because I had another similar experience where instead of visualizing an athletic event, I visualized myself basically going through SEAL training and graduating. It's not a fast process. Like this took months and months and months of work. And I would say around nine months, I had this shift in my psychology where suddenly I didn't hope to be a Navy SEAL or desired a Navy SEAL. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was going to be a Navy SEAL. I had 100% certainty. And it was that week that shift came across me that the recruiter called and said, hey, Mark, congratulations. You're one of two guys who were selected this year. And then when I went to SEAL training, similar to experience like when I jumped off the blocks into the pool, I was like, ah, this feels really familiar. This feels familiar. Even though you have never been there, it felt familiar because your nervous system had spent so many hours right practicing it <laughs> practicing that the the same neural circuits that you needed to employ once you got to Coronado Beach or wherever you guys were doing your training right. those same neural circuits that you exercised there in the actual environment you had already been exercising them in the theater of your own imagination right i'm sure many of your listeners are aware of this but it bears repeating Our human nervous system, in so many important ways, does not distinguish between something that we actually experience and something that we vividly imagine experiencing. 
And so the implications of that are vast. Extraordinary. If you want to be comfortable playing a piano recital in Carnegie Hall, it's very, very advisable for you to get a whole lot of photos of what that place looks like and be able to insert yourself, just as you described, insert yourself into those pictures, feel the glare of those particular lights, sense what the floor looks like, sense what you might be seeing as you walk out onto that stage, sit at that piano stool, take your breath and begin to play, and then feel your fingers on the keys, feel the emotional content of the music, hear the precise tones coming out of that Steinway or whatever you're playing. That process can benefit anyone in pretty much any human performance activity. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. It's difficult work, though, and especially the way you describe that is so interesting because it is, for it to be effective, it's got to be a multi-sensory, enriched, embodied experience, right? And so yeah. most people don't use their minds that way. So how do we, how do you train a cadet or a new athlete, you know, how do you take them from zero to what you just described, you know, a full sensory envisioned experience as if you were there in person? I start with something really simple and then work up to complicated scenarios. The simplest thing that I can do, gosh, just imagine that you're sitting at your kitchen table and you have a nice ripe lemon in front of you on a plate with a nice sharp knife and you cut into that lemon and you feel the weight of the lemon in your hand and you feel the texture of it and you can see the way the light glistens off the cut surface and you bring it up to your face, and you can smell that lemony, citrusy aroma, and you, you may just take a little tentative like lick at it, and then a little careful bite, and you can taste the juice, and now you imagine taking a great big mouthful of it and chewing it up and really feeling it in your mouth and just doing simple things like that. Tell me, Mark, is your mouth watering right now? Yeah, yeah, no, I just ate a lemon. It's delicious. You just ate a lemon. No, you didn't <laughs> eat a lemon, but your nervous system the taste buds in your tongue were activated. They sent a message back to your cortex. Your cortex sent messages to your sublingual glands to start producing saliva, mm-hmm. all in the absence of anything that was real. It was just your imagination literally changing your biology. So you were doing that to prepare your biology to swim a really good 200-meter breaststroke. You were preparing your biology to do the swim tasks, to do the lifting tasks, to do the runs, the, the push-ups, et cetera, et cetera, at SEAL training. We're doing the same things here with athletes, with firefighters, and with cadets who are doing things like preparing to interview for a Marshall Scholarship or a Rhodes Scholarship. All your listeners out there who are entrepreneurs assembling a team, bringing a product to market, this kind of detailed envisioning can pay huge dividends. Right. But to get back to your question, you have to start with something small. Right. Okay. And be able to create a multi-sensory representation of it. And then you can move on to bigger things. You know? Right. I have guys, I have guys do visualizations about a football, if that's their game, being able to see the texture of the leather and the exact contour of the laces and feel it in their hands and, and move it around. And then can you imagine that you are now on a field and you're holding that ball, but you can feel the turf under your feet. 
and you look around and, okay, there's the goalpost. There's the scoreboard. Now let's imagine there's one other member of my team and I'm just throwing a really simple, you know, 15 yard out pattern. You can build up, build up, build up endless layers of complexity just right. starting from those simple things. Do you guide the visualizations for your, your athletes or do you have them kind of do it themselves? There's a mixture. Right. At times I have to guide them, especially in cases when we want to make sure that we are preparing for certain situations right. or that we're, we are rehearsing particular skills. A lacrosse player trying to learn a particular dodge and get a shot off to a particular part of the goal. If that's a goal of hers that she wants to achieve and improve that skill, well, then we, I will guide that visualization exactly, narrating it, and then let her take it over. Later on, as people become more sophisticated, boy, I can sit them down. I can do a little deep breathing. We can relax into a nice, easy, quasi-meditative state. And then all I have to say is, you're on the field. It's the fourth quarter. Ball starting at our 15-yard line. We need a touchdown. There's no field goal option. Run the offense. See the sequence. Let me know when you're standing in the end zone celebrating that touchdown. And they can just run with it and go with it and produce the, all those wonderful pictures. Oh, that's cool. So I can see how stimulating and training your nervous system for the win in advance has a big effect on one's self-confidence, which is the topic of your book. What other things do you work with? What other tools or parts of an individual's psychology do you work with to improve confidence? I start out typically making sure that people get a good handle on their memories. Mm -hmm. Managing the memories that you have of yourself in a particular performance situation or with regard to, you know, your given pr profession. Those long-term memories, what are the most successful moments you've ever had? Or what are the seminal moments that really established you as someone who might be really good at a sport or a, uh, a musical instrument or a particular academic subject? And then I conduct people and advise them to do a daily, fairly in-depth reflection of their experience of the day journaling, deliberately journaling an episode of success, mm -hmm. an episode of effort, an episode of progress. And in this way, we sort of assemble a collection of encouraging, optimistic thoughts about ourselves right. by deliberately selecting out the right kinds of memories. Right. That's a process that anybody can do. It doesn't take a lot of time. You just got to understand, uh, you know, a few principles and the value. And the um, corollary outcome to that is you're training, you're training your mind to look for the good things as opposed to being dwelling on the bad, you know, or the negative or the suboptimal. And so many people dwell on the, on the failures or the, you know, the things that didn't go well. And unfortunately, that just keeps greases the groove of that negative conditioning. Exactly. You're greasing the wrong kind of groove. Right. So... I encourage people to take a very active, selective, deliberate role in managing their memories. And I counsel people to take an active, deliberate role in telling themselves stories about themselves in terms of, I have this quality. I have this skill level. I am achieving a given outcome. The sort of affirmational process that is very specific and very detailed rather than just looking yourself in the mirror and saying, oh, every day I'm getting better looking. Okay, no. Better and better, yeah. Every day my footwork 
from the baseline to the top of the paint gets more precise. Mm-hmm. My shooting mechanics are quick and precise. My defensive presence on the field is felt by all my teammates, really getting people to tell stories to themselves about themselves, which are empowering and which subtly but significantly force them to take the right actions to become what they tell themselves that they are. And this goes, again, right back to that soccer team. Yeah, the story. You're going to tell yourself, we're a powerhouse, which means you're going to practice like a powerhouse player. It's very interesting the way that relationship works. That's fascinating. It's so true that we are just a collection of stories individually and as a team or a community and that we can architect those stories. And that's the key. It's like successful people have figured this out throughout the centuries. And and it's just like architect the story that you want to live and then that story will show up, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you got to take action, of course, but the action is built upon the thought. Back to um, imagery and self-talk, why do you think it's important that when we're doing this work, we talk to ourselves as if we've already accomplished it, as opposed to in a sense of like, it's still out there and I'm grasping for it or I'm reaching for it or I desire it. When you affirm something in the present tense, it just becomes more immediate. It just becomes more palpable. I'm sure it accesses a deeper level of neurology when you think, you know, my feet are in perfect rhythm as I round that turn for the 400 meters, as opposed to my feet will be. There's a very different level of physical immediacy that comes when you phrase it in the present tense. Yeah. It's a subtle difference, but it makes a big difference in the outcome. Do you work with non-athlete cadets, you know, like the general population to prepare them for combat? Absolutely. Well, let's be fair. Every cadet is an athlete. Okay. A warrior athlete, yeah. Every cadet at West Point is training to be a tactical athlete. And we have, as you're well aware, pretty strict physical requirements. We have physical fitness testing twice a year. We have a mandatory indoor obstacle course test that you must take every year. We have a mandatory survival swimming class, mandatory combatives, mandatory boxing. Mm -hmm. Every cadet is indeed an athlete. Some of those cadets struggle a little bit with some of those requirements. Mm -hmm. Some of our cadets struggle with the academic grind of West Point. Mm -hmm. But the same mental skills that we employ for the cadets who you're going to see participating in the Army-Navy football game every year in December on television, those same techniques are of value to the cadet who is looking to maybe be the, have the highest fitness test score in his or her company, or the cadet who wants to ensure that they're going to get an acceptance to medical school upon graduation, Mm -hmm. because their vision, their desired goal is to become an orthopedic surgeon for the army. Mm -hmm. So all of the skills are applicable across the board to all cadet performance endeavors. And I spend just about as much time with non-varsity athlete cadets, as my program does with our football, basketball, baseball, wrestling, lacrosse, rugby, swimming, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How does that work? I mean, you can't obviously can't work one-on-one with everybody at the school. We have the 10-lesson mental skills for cadet success course. Mm-hmm. My staff and I are embedded with various teams, so we can do some collective training. 
We will do workshops for cadets in different performance situations like the uh, survival swimming class. So we do try to scale it up as best we can. Got it. So, so far we've talked about imagery work and self-talk. What other tools, what other powerful tools do you use with the, those are kind of like the most probably potent. You got to get those right, but what else works? I think you got to have a certain perspective. I think some of the other, the skills of regulating your self-talk are based upon some understandings about the function of the mind, the mind-body connection, the fact of simple human imperfection and being able to deal with that without a great loss of energy and enthusiasm for yourself. I spent an hour just about two hours ago with the cadet educating him about how to deal with the negative self-talk and how to interpret his own imperfections in competition instead of having something go wrong and that voice in his head and immediately jumps to, uh-oh, here we go again, I'm in trouble. No, being able to interpret that mistake, that imperfection, just as a temporary process. It happened, but it just happened then in time. It happened just there in place. And no, it's not the definitive statement about how good a player he is. So you have to kind of leave those mistakes as temporary, limited, really non-representative of who you are. Right. It's getting people to accept the fact that they have a choice to make about how they view themselves in moments of competition. And once you understand those principles, and as you say, you practice them, you practice them, you practice them, man, eventually it gets into your neurology and it becomes natural for you to rise above or not be dragged down by the difficulties that we all face and by the inevitable imperfections that we all commit at times. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. So that speaks to kind of like the emotional aspect of self-confidence. You can be a great athlete and have all the skills dialed in and still torpedo your own success, you know, at the one yard line because of some emotional shadow issue or trauma that's unresolved. Or perhaps just simply because you're wondering, okay, hey, we didn't get a whole lot of reps on this goal line. Right. I wish we had practiced it more, you know. Instead of saying, okay, well, we got the reps we got, and those reps are enough. That's right. We're putting it in. Being able to say to yourself, I am enough for this moment, even if, you know, you really gave it a whole lot of sober reflection, you can come to the conclusion that we really didn't practice this a whole lot, (laughs) but I have no choice but to be certain about it in the moment. We'd all love to have the perfect level of preparation. We'd all love to have enough opportunities to study for that upcoming exam and make sure that we had enough time to cover every chapter and every possible detail so we could walk into that exam feeling like, hey, I really know this subject matter. We don't always get that time, mm-hmm. but you can't use the fact that, hey, I didn't have a whole lot of time to study as an excuse to walk into that exam room shaking in your boots. Mm-hmm. you got no choice if you actually care about doing well. Right. But to say to yourself, okay, I studied what I studied. I know what I know. I'm going to let out everything I know. Let's see if this professor can stump me. 
And it's coming into it with that kind of borderline cockiness that I think is really valuable. And our schooling system tends not to teach that. Right. And our whole society is very ambivalent about confidence. Yeah, we know you got to have some, but you better not have too much, kid. You better not think too highly of yourself. Our cadets and our society at large is drilled with those sorts of messages. So there's plenty of work for me to do to straighten folks out. Yeah, no, I'm definitely certain of that. I, I've heard stories from the SEAL instructors, you know, dealing with you know, youth of today as they come in. And it's interesting. They have low confidence with an attitude, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a strange combination, right? Very strange. Yeah. So you got to unwind some things. That's interesting. Um, what motivated you to write The Confident Mind? Because of the number of people who kept coming into my office and saying, you know, I used to really feel good about my game, or I used to feel really, you know, comfortable with myself. And now here I am, and I just don't have any confidence in myself anymore. Hmm. And it's so funny because a lot of these people, you know, were uh, high school All Americans. All state this, all state that, team MVP, team captain. So they sure had plenty of success in their past, but they somehow discounted the value of that success and did not choose to use it to allow themselves to feel more and more certain mm-hmm. about themselves in the present. So, in answer to your question, I was moved to write this book because, geez, this to me is where it all starts. If you can learn how to be confident, your ability to be present and fully absorbed in what you're doing very much happens by itself. Hmm. You cannot be absorbed in the moment and experience, you know, what the literature refers to as flow or being in the zone if in the back of your mind is a heck of a lot of uncertainty. Right. So let's address that uncertainty as best we can and give yourself the chance to be you know, I use the expression flow friendly or flow ready or flow accessible. Right. I love that. So much of performance in a team-based setting is built upon collective energy, right? The collective confidence. And so I'm curious, do you do any like team visualizations where everyone is experiencing the same outcomes? Because that's something that I'm working on or kind of encouraging my clients, organizational clients and team-based clients, like power of the team experiencing the same vision is unbelievable. It's geometric compared to what any individual can accomplish. Exponential, I I would say. Yeah. So, you know, here we are with, say, the lacrosse team, which is a externally paced team sport, all kinds of things happening. Can we all imagine being on the field And can we all imagine other members of our team executing beautifully? You know, the goalie's making a beautiful save. That save is getting out to one of the defensemen. That defenseman is finding space, getting the ball upfield to a midfielder. That midfielder is bringing the ball across the midfield line. He's passing off to one of the attackmen who's cutting forward. That midfielder is running off. On comes the offensive midfielder. And now we're seeing this particular offense go into into play, getting people to see not just their own execution, but the execution of the people who are on the field with them at the same time. Right. And building that sort of collective understanding, that collective enthusiasm for one another. Right. 
Oh, that's cool. So you've been at West Point now since 92. That's 30 years. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to be there for another 30 or what's next for you? <laughs> well, you know, I, I have to say, you know, once upon a time I had some hair. <laughs> <laughs> you're looking good. Oh, appreciate that. Yeah, you're appreciate on. that. Yeah, I, I have seen a lot of things changed. I mean, God, you go back 30 years, no internet, no computers. Right. Everything was done on manual typewriters. <laughs> Communication done in person, a completely different world that we have moved into just in my short lifetime. Right. But curiously enough... Human beings still a human being. <laughs> human beings are still human beings. We are still these Pleistocene-based Cro-Magnons. <laughs> we are essentially cave dwellers. We have the same nutritional requirements. Right. We still crave human contact and social connection, despite the fact that, you know, we wear clothes and shave parts of our bodies and use computers, we're still that animal that is motivated by certain basic needs. And we still have a brain and a nervous system that is the product of the Pleistocene, meaning we have a very highly developed sense of what could go wrong. Right. And, you know, we've got a built-in, you know, alarm system which elevates our energy level when we perceive any kind of threat or we perceive ourselves to be engaged in something that has consequences. That's why we all experience a fight or flight response episode when we're about to take a test. It's not a threat to our existence, but because it's something important, our primitive biology elevates to a certain degree. Right. And that primitive biology has us looking over our shoulder a lot because our Pleistocene ancestors lived a very uncertain life. We didn't know where the food would come from, if the water would be pure. Uh, we had some built-in, wired-in tendencies to try to take care of everything. We also, by the way, have a built-in tendency for optimism as well. I should balance that out. But we still have to deal with these very basic aspects of human being. Right. Despite the fact that we can shoot with missiles instead of bows and arrows. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, the human architecture hasn't really upgraded much. Although I would submit that sports psychology, performance psychology, mindset training, and the ubiquitous nature of it these days, I think is set to really upgrade kind of the human being. I like to think that we can make some minor software modifications That's right. yeah. on you know, taking advantage of the somewhat primitive hardware that we are all equipped with. I agree with that. That's awesome. And it sounds like your book, which I look forward to reading, will help with that software upgrade. The Confident Mind, a Battle-Tested Guide to Unshakable Performance. Love that title. Available at Amazon or anywhere uh, books are sold, I imagine. Quite right. Where can folks learn more about you and your work, uh, the book? Do you have a website, social media? Yes. NateZinser.com okay. is up and running. Uh, look forward to connecting to any and all of your listeners. And again, I thank you for this opportunity to be part of your podcast. I thank you personally for your service to the nation. Yeah, thank you. And I wish the best to all your listeners for a safe and healthy 2022. Hoo-yah to that. 
Wow, that was an incredible, incredible uh, discussion with Dr. Nate Zinser, the Army's sports psychologist. Show notes and transcripts will be on markdevine.com, and the video will be up on the YouTube channel. If you want to reach out on Twitter, it's Mark Devine. At Facebook and Instagram, it's at RealMarkDevine, or you can hit me up at my LinkedIn profile. Quick plug for the newsletter that's coming out called Divine Inspiration. would love to have you on the email list, the subscriber list, because you're going to want to catch this weekly update from me with new interesting content around things I'm fascinated with and um, lots of real cool things that will inspire you. So go to markdivine.com to um, subscribe if you're not on the list. Special shout out to my amazing team, Jason Sanderson, Jeff Haskell, Michelle Zarnak, and Amy Jerkowitz, who helped to produce this podcast every single week with incredible guests, incredible video and editing and support. Couldn't do it without them. Love reviews. Reviews help other people find the show. We've got over 1,000 five-star reviews. My goal this year is to get the 5,000 five-star reviews over at Apple. So wherever you listen to the show, please consider reviewing it and share this show. As you know, we are in challenging times, and that is both a blessing and a curse. It's up to us to be the change we want to see in the world. Let's do that at scale. Um, our goal at, at Unbeatable Mind is to train 100 million people to be more caring and compassionate and world-centric in their perspective and their leadership. And that takes daily effort to train our minds, to train our bodies, to train our spirits, and to integrate. And uh, so I encourage you to do the work every day. And if you want to learn more about Unbeatable Mind, please just go to unbeatablemind.com and learn about the incredible programs that we have there. Till next time, be unbeatable, stay focused, and um, be inspired. Hoo-yah. <laughs>